Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Jack and Drill. That's what I called this one, Tim. You like that? Jack and Drill. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how you were going to come into this, but that, that, that's a good one. I mean, Jack Hamlin, first of all, man, very, very pleased to have you on. Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel. I've been following you for a while. We finally met at one of the only industry events that happened this year. It was the, it was a, it was a midstream oil and gas golf tournament out in Golden. You remember that? I do. It was the Rocky Mountain Pipeliners uh, golf tournament. That was great. And I, I was like, we, we better enjoy this while we can, because there's not going to be too many of these types of tournaments here in Colorado this, this yeah, year. What was it like to get together in person at an event? It was awesome. It was. And I was on the uh, board of the Rocky Mountain Pipeliners. So getting through the uh, the hurdles there and figuring out the COVID rules was challenging. But golf golf is, uh, has been a great social distancing activity through the whole pandemic. So it actually worked out really well. It's been one of my highlights. I, th- I think there were a lot more fist bumps than handshakes, but still saw a few handshakes. It was it was a day where I finally felt like hey, we're, we're kind of normal for a day. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. Um, but no, Jack, you, you've done a lot here, uh, in particular in Colorado. We're going to talk today about some of your battles, quote unquote, with the COGCC. Also going to dive into a little bit about your view of California and all of the things that they've done wrong as it relates to energy, production, consumption, regulation, uh, and, and talk about a, a bunch of other things. You know, you grew up here in Colorado. Uh, you've been through a, a company acquisition. So we're going to dive into a whole bunch of things. But I guess before we do that, Jack, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your upbringing, um, what you thought about oil and gas when you were younger, and then um, getting into the industry as an adult. Yeah, that's actually a great intro and something that uh, no one's ever asked, but it it lends itself to kind of the the uh, organic nature that I got into the industry. And so I grew up in Littleton, Colorado, south of Denver. Uh, my whole life been been here and uh, went to school in Greeley up at UNC. So when I got stressed out at finals or needed to go home for holidays or to see the parents, I would drive through Weld County and watch all these people out in the field working on drill rigs and work over rigs. And, you know, b- back then that was 2000, 2001 or late nineties even. And oil and gas, while it was somewhat prevalent in the basin here, um, horizontal drilling and fracking really hadn't been a practice that had put uh, been put into place so that, but I still remember like driving through Weld County and, and other parts of Colorado and, and, you know, th- through my whole childhood, energy independence was, it was the, 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 you know, it was the Holy grail people, America to have energy independence represented a a huge geopolitical uh, lever. It it represented low energy prices for its citizens. And so when I, when I used to drive through Colorado and see all that oil and gas development, I, I I thought it was awesome. It's something I always wanted to do. and I really didn't know how to get into it or anything like that. I just thought, wow, those, those guys are working out in the field. They're working hard through all types of weather. And they're, they're bringing a commodity that we all use and that makes our life better to market. So growing up in Colorado like that, going to all Colorado schools, being uh, in the state for 42 years now, um, 
finally kind of got into it through uh, an engineering track. And, um, you know, as a business guy, I looked at it and I thought, there's a there's a commodity that I use every day, whether I'm traveling in an airplane or in my car or my motorcycle or turning on the heat in my home or my electricity. Everything I touched that made my life better was was petrochemical based oil and gas related. Right. So I kind of looked at it from a business perspective and thought this is a commodity that the world uses and needs. And so that's how I got into it. And I I have a genuine belief that uh, the, the industry is a noble one and the things that we do and the products we produce enhance life. And that runs counter to the the current narrative, which is that oil and gas uh, development destroys life and makes it worse. Ruining um, all of our lives. You're poisoning my children and my water turns to right. fire. Yeah. It's, it's complete paranoia. And um, it's, you know, living in Colorado and especially being up in the mountains, you go through one snowstorm and you don't have natural gas to heat your home. And uh, you'd probably be dead. And that's reality, right? Yep. So you're, you're dealing with, I look at, you know, every time there's a storm or inclement weather or a heat wave, oil and gas saves lives. It doesn't, it doesn't destroy it. So that's, that's my perspective from it. It's truly organic. I, I run an engineering company that, you know, it, it, it puts safety factors and, and, and low environmental footprint into all the things we design. These things are designed by you know, all these oil and gas facilities and pipeline systems. These are designed by engineers that were trained. They're, they're very smart people. Um, they're trained here in Colorado a lot of times at Colorado School of Mines and CU Boulder and CSU. So there's these great engineering minds coming together and putting these things together to make sure that they're safe and they're the highest quality uh, in the world in a lot of cases and that they have the, mo- the minimal environmental footprint um, both in land disturbance on the surface and in emissions. And uh, I'm a true believer that our model here in Colorado is, is a model that should be exported globally. And uh, we're, what we're fighting now is an outright ban. Um, yep. So it's, a, it's just a matter of, uh, yeah, that's how I got into the industry. I love the industry. I, I uh, didn't ever think I would become a mouthpiece for it by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but it uh, kind of, you know, the, the fight kind of came to us and I was happy to stand up and, um, tell my story. And now that I have, um, I've had a circle that surrounded me that's encouraged us and myself to continue that fight. And uh, what what we do and what we're doing, is, it's the right thing. And I think history will prove that right. Awesome. Yeah. So, so as a great perspective and, you know, I just love, it, it seems from, all right, I'm in Texas and, you know, we, the oil industry has been the industry, you know, since the thirties or even sooner in the state of Texas. What excuse me, growing up in Colorado is there had to be some rub off of, you know, there's a, there's a greener approach and that's fine. I think it's fantastic, but developing your perspective, driving through Weld County and those places, but then living in Littleton in your formative years had to have some, different impact, I guess, when you think about, you know, some guy like me growing up in Texas, what is the difference in perspective do you think you have as an oil and gas guy in Colorado versus an oil and gas guy in Texas? I guess that's the point I was trying to get to. Uh, That's a good good question. I mean, I think uh, in Colorado, you've got this really, it's a crossroads of a lot of things. You've got a ton of tourism because of the mountains. You've got tons of environmental activism here. You want to keep lots of open space, rivers, creeks, 
water is always a fresh water is always kind of a constant uh, worry. And then you've got, you know, oil and gas and industrial development. So it's kind of and then you on top of that, you've got Denver uh, and the the front, whole front range sits upon just a massive urban sprawl. So over the last 15, 20 years, you know, when I look the oil fields kind of always been in Texas and they've been proud of that. Right. Where the difference in Colorado is, is right now you've got a, a, a population of people that think that the oil field is moving into their communities. Having been here for a longer period of time, it's the opposite. These communities moved on top of existing oil field production. And it's, a, you know, kind of a metaphor would be, you know, you always hear the people that move on to a golf course and then they hate that their house gets hit by golf balls and they <laughs> end up doing the golf course and put netting up. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very similar type uh, parallel. And that's kind of the main difference. I mean, the oil field in northern Colorado has been uh, always – been pretty oil field proud but um texas certainly i mean it, when you it's texas is synonymous with oil colorado really wasn't that way up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago and then the development in both oil and gas and then urban sprawl kind of happened simultaneously so you're having this kind of surface war over what types of industrial development is appropriate next to residential areas or vice versa Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of regular. So, so Colorado, to answer your question, Colorado seems like it's a lot more regulated. You know, there's there's a lot more uh, focus on reduction of emissions and reducing foot land footprint. Whereas West Texas, I mean, flat land as far as the eye can see. And, and you know, if, if a pad was five acres versus two, it really didn't matter. And uh, flaring wasn't that big of a deal because there's no nobody to really complain about it because, you know, it wasn't keeping them up at night, the light or whatever the noise. So there's just, you know, big differences there. Uh, the, the, the drilling and, and operations take place now a lot closer to residential areas uh, and commercial areas than they, than they ever have. Whereas I think, I think Texas for the most part, especially West Texas, it's, 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 it's still wild and it always will be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is interesting to me how, people will move into an area and not realize just how close they are to an oil and gas operation, especially modern ones, because, you know, you may not even know that there's a well over the, over the hill or that's a pad or those tanks that are sitting there. You know, so there's been so much reduction of footprint, even in West Texas. I mean, I've seen guys burying the wellheads. So they're actually below ground um, in some areas. So they're not even seen. So the farmers can come back on top. Anyway, and then if you go out to California, just to ah, bring this I point. Just, I was just going to bring that up. You go to Long Beach, California, and there are wells. Nobody knows that they're there. I mean, the, the islands just offshore of Long Beach. I mean, a lot of people know that those are oil and gas islands, but I've heard stories of people coming out and seeing those islands and wondering, can I get a house or a property on that location? <laughs> Not realizing what yeah. they're man-made islands to drill wells underneath the city of Long Beach. But most people don't realize that they're that close to an operating oil and gas field. Well, even more, they've got they've got buildings on the mainland that are you know basically a facade that look like a three or four story skyscraper apartment building. They're basically four big walls that would hide a, a workover rig or a drill rig there, um, and those are producing wells right in the city limits and in L.A. I mean, California sits atop the third largest oil reserves in the country, and that's the whole paradox of the thing, right? They they have all this energy underneath their feet. Yet they have rolling blackouts and they import 60% of their oil. Um, 
those are the types of kind of <laughs> that's the paradigm we're in. It's it's ban it here and, and import it from somewhere else and effectively export your emissions and call that green. It's not something that I I can get on board with. Um, the, the United States leads the world in CO2 reduction, and that's largely in part because of natural gas conversion off of coal. So it's a lot to be proud of here, even though it doesn't feel like, you know, the, the, the prevailing narrative should feel like uh, we're bad people. I'm very proud of what we do on a daily basis. And um, so, are, so are a lot of the colleagues uh, I'm surrounded with. Man, I, I love, I, we're going to dive deeper into your whole uh, kind of California story because you put out a fantastically written article um, talking about California and all the things do, they do wrong. We'll get into that um, in a second. But my best friend, so I'm from New Hampshire. I'm like a New England kid from the sticks. I've said it a few times on this podcast. There have, in the history of the state of New Hampshire, there have been three dry holes drilled ever. And then they're like, eh, let's move on from here. Like there's no fracking ban or anything like that, but it's like, why even try? There's nothing Why there. ban something that's not there? <laughs> doesn't yeah. matter. But my best friend from high school uh, moved to LA to be a surfer, dude. He's a surfer guy. And on one of my business trips to California, uh, we're hanging out, having some drinks at a bar um, in Santa Monica. And I'm like, did you know that uh, we're sitting on one of the largest oil basins in the world? He goes, oh, absolutely. He said, some days when I go out surfing, my foot kind of seeps in a little bit further into the water and I pull it out and it's covered in oil. So, I mean, it's on the surface there. I mean, people don't realize it's not like yeah, you I mean, have to that, go deep uh, in the ground to get it. And that's naturally was- occurring. It's They don't realize that those seeps are, they're not produced by the oil company. It's not a leak from an oil operation. It's just naturally occurring. Yeah, the the La Brea tar pits were. I mean, that's a huge uh, area where there's there's a lot of fossil activity from mammoths and that that got stuck in the tar pits. That uh, oil is a completely natural, organic substance, and it seeps to the surface just like a lot of other things. And uh, the, the first oil that was ever used uh, to waterproof canoes and boots and things like that. That was all surface tar and, and bitumen and oil. I mean, yeah, it's it's not just 10,000 feet underground. It both in the Gulf of Mexico and California and Canada, all over the world seeps to the surface naturally. Yeah, when I was, I took a field trip last January, I think, maybe even, it might've been earlier in year to not La Brea, but to Brea. And there's one of the oldest oil fields in California is there. And just, you know, when you're driving onto the field location, there's a there's a small seep right there shining in the sunlight on the day, and you drive over it. You just drive straight over it on your car up to the field office. And I asked the guys, I said, well, Heather's, there's oil flowing right there. Do you guys want to, shouldn't you have a bucket down there to catch it and sell it? And they said, oh, no, no, no. That's naturally occurring. We don't touch that because once we touch it, we own it and we now have to clean it. So it's mm-hmm. like, hey, it's been there for years and we can prove that it's been there for thousands and thousands of years flowing. So we, we don't even want to get close to it. And it seems a shame that, you know, the, you can't just capture this and, and go sell it, but that's the way it is. So they'll drill a well right next to the seat, but not to where the seat is. Sure. So Jack, let's educate some of my homies out in California. What the hell is wrong with that, man? Go ahead. Well, I mean, that's a very complex question. A lot of it's driven by um, out-of-control politicians and, and regulatory bodies that have latched onto the narrative that 
oil and gas production is bad. And, and the reality is that the United States produces the cleanest oil and gas in the world. Uh, there, our environmental footprint and the way that it that we go about it from a safety perspective is unparalleled or unmatched. And California, uh, like I, touched, I alluded to earlier, it, it, they sit upon massive reserves, but they've essentially locked those reserves out and have, have uh, kind of have a de facto ban against not only the production of that oil and gas, but also the transmission of it into their state via, you know, pipeline project uh, throttling. They don't, they don't allow many, if at all, any pipeline, new pipelines to be built or expanded on. Wow. So what that leaves, and it's very similar to what Germany has, is as they have this energy deficiency, they import it from somewhere else. In Germany's case, it's they're importing a lot more natural gas from Russia to cover the the uh, gaps in, in uh, power from their renewables push. And in the United States, you have California, for instance, importing 60% of its oil. A lot of it, I, I think of the 60% of the oil that they import, 55% uh, of it comes through the Strait of Hormuz. So what they're doing is loading oil on a tanker halfway around the world, shipping it halfway around the world, offloading it in California and using it and calling that green. What? I mean, that's the rest of it. A lot of it comes from Ecuador or somewhere in, in middle, uh, Central or South America. So that's where all their energy is coming from. They've got enough to be energy independent. They, they choose not to, to harness that energy and, and uh, develop it. And so that's, that's what we're up against. And that's, that's real similar to what we're seeing in Colorado is uh, in some of the COGCC fights that we've been in, in the discussions, I've, I've engaged some of the opposition and talked to them and really tried to get an understanding of what and where, uh, how they came to their reasoning, right? They, they drove to these meetings. They came from a natural, natural gas heated home and they came to the meeting to rally against a, an energy source that they use every day. And one of the people still rings in my head. I mean, even in testimony, got up there and stammered about saying, you know, Colorado's a net energy exporter. We don't need to produce any, any oil or gas. We have too much. But they don't understand the bigger picture. We export that to other places that don't have that type of mineral wealth or that type of resource wealth. Yeah. So, so states like Nebraska and Iowa, they get those and all over the country. It's, it's pushed out all over the country and the world in some cases to meet those energy demands. And so that's yeah, where, where Colorado's get their food from. Yeah. I mean, um, it's just most most of the perception and narrative comes from complete uninformed populace and people that just it's it's uh, virtue signaling at its finest. Right. Like, hey, look, we can ban it here and pat ourselves on the back, but we're not really going to modify our lifestyle. Put a couple solar panels on our roof and still use all the same, you know, same products and materials as before. But, hey, at least it's not in our backyard. That's a very popular uh, and common human attribute, right? Not in my backyard, NIMBY thinking. Colorado is the largest you know, advocate against oil and gas in the state. And they have been for 40 years. They've, they've been very anti-oil and gas for 40 years. That particular county, I mean, they've had 40 years to install renewable energy sources like wind farms and solar panels on all their open space, but they haven't. They, they just pipeline in natural gas and... Just because they don't develop there, they're using they're using the natural gas and oil that Weld County develops and produces. They're a consumer of it. 
and, and that's that's a real that I think is where where I think the ener- the energy industry needs to to pivot and market is that this is a consumer driven industry industry. But oil companies aren't out there producing something no one wants. They're Boulder should be just, just get off oil. And if enough people did that, then the, uh, you know, the free market would take care of itself. But instead, it's ban it here, import it from somewhere else. And, and that's the, the we're going to call that a win. And it doesn't make any mm. sense when you when you look at it through that lens. But when you're talking about a narrative and feel good and virtue signaling, none of that matters. And um, the oil industry in itself is, is pretty terrible at marketing itself and um, standing up for itself in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that's that's probably the biggest thing is that, you know, we're not out there able to say, you know, for fear of of backlash, hey, this is this is what we're doing and why it's better to do it here than, you know, maybe importing it from some other location. Yeah, we used to import it from all over the globe and energy prices fluctuated wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was intermittent. There was rationing. Uh, there was no geopolitical strength there. Uh, the oil is traded in American dollars. There's tons of strength to be the, the world's leading producer of oil. It's something to be proud of. And uh, it's an energy source we all use. And, you know, the thing about oil and gas, I've, I've been in oil and gas for 15 years. I've never heard one person in the industry be anti-renewable. In fact, we use a lot of solar panels on remote sites and things like that. Yep. All of the above methodology for every solar panel and wind turbine, there's a backup of natural gas and oil or, or some other source. And so that's a lot of time not calculated into the cost of renewables is, hey, at nighttime or if there's snow on your solar panels or if the wind doesn't blow, you have to have a reliable backup. That's something Alex Epstein talks about a lot. Um, but it's it's not something that, that people think about. They want their, their switch to come on. You know, they want, they want their light to come on when they switch it on at night and their heat to come on. And other than that, um, if it feels good to say ban oil and gas in Colorado, they'll do it. And, and we've observed it. And it's it's been frustrating to be in these COGCC meetings and the town hall meetings and that where people completely rail against oil and gas. And there's really no opposition to that. We don't we don't have the numbers to stand up and fight back and, and tell our story where I think it's a great story. They're they're again, our facilities are designed by engineers and scientists. And it's our, our, our whole our whole industry is rooted in science and technology and uh, safety. And and we have a great story to tell. We just uh, don't have the numbers to, that, that have the, the courage or the, the, the willpower to go out and, and talk about it. And um, I understand why, but the fight's here. So it's either, it's either, you know, speak up or accept your fate at this point. <laughs> you know, so I want to dig a little bit more into that, Jack, because you've been uh, really at the forefront with the COGCC, even uh, having sit-downs with Jared Polis. And, and just as an aside, you know, I'm, I'm a Jewish guy. Jared Polis goes to my temple, or at least, you know, when we could actually sit down in the same place. You know, he'd sit there with his kids, and I'd sit there with mine. And great, I think Jared Polis, you know, has his views. I think he caters a little bit to to both sides. He's a businessman, yada, yada, and so forth. You have had to sit down with the COGCC and the governor, right? And and people who are the mayors of each of these disciplines. How do those conversations typically go? And do you feel like it's a little bit of, of rage against the machine and that, you know, you're effectively representing the machine, but you've got a lot of angry people. T- tell me what this has been like for you 
being sort of that representative for the industry with facts to be to back you uh, when there's a lot of anger coming at you. Yeah. Uh, so the the real bizarre thing is I never wanted to be in this spot. I never thought in a million <laughs> years that I would, again, be a mouthpiece or, or even be standing up to this effect. But it uh, it seems like the, the more that we fight and, and, and try to tell our story, the more static we, we catch. The, the fight's been a really tough one. And, and I'd like to start, I, I understand why the anti-oil and gas people, most of them, feel the way they do. I think oil and gas historically has done a very terrible job of communicating to the communities and being transparent and open and having town halls to understand like, hey, what can we do better? And how can we put some extra capital dollars towards this? Like they do in California. I mean, they build these big facades like we talked about around it. And, you know, maybe if there's a little bit of more of that at the forefront, it wouldn't have been as as, as tough as it was because it, it's basically you know, as, as the communities moved into oil fields and then they would, would build subsequent well pads and that in, in the uh, neighborhoods, people felt unsafe. Now, feeling unsafe and being unsafe, two different things. Uh, I looked at the well mm-hmm. pads, know that we designed a lot of them and that they had multiple safety systems that were re- redundant. And I mean, it, it was safer than the local gas station you go to that they have no problem getting out of their car and filling in. It's just that everything's buried underground and hidden behind a beautiful storefront, right? So, um the fights, though, with the COGCC, when it was recast uh, after Senate Bill 181 passed, you know, it's it's been frustrating, to say the least. Um, it's it's apparent that we're not listened to in terms of like the, the people, you know, discussing oil, the pros of oil and gas. It feels like it falls on deaf ears. You kind of get the blank look, deer and headlights look from the from the COGCC members. Um when we're talking about what we design and how we design it and the engineering that goes into it and the environmental stewardship, you know, a lot of the clients that I work with, they're, they're stewards of the land. The land that they, they produce and operate on is clean and it's safe and well-maintained and, you know, next to some other types of neighborhoods or industrial type properties, oil and gas is the, the, the land is, is very well kept. And it's easy to remediate if the if the well's done or the well pad's past its service life, it can be remediated, look, go back to native land. But anyway, dealing with the COGCC, uh, I mean, there was going to these COGCC meetings at the start, the opposition was very well coordinated. And and I have no proof to say it, but a lot, I believe they were paid to be there by several groups. There was 30 or 40 people at every single meeting, whether it was up in Glenwood Springs or down in Denver or wherever it was, it was the same people. And there was, there was no decorum rules. It was, if you got up to speak and you were pro oil, they would all in concert in an orchestration, start coughing really loud. So you couldn't talk. They would effectively silence you. Or when they, in one, one instance where I went to a town hall in Erie to talk about some of the developments we were designing up there, um, got up to speak. And right as I got up to speak behind the, COGCC panel, they, they held up all these tombstones in the window and they shut the meeting down for safety reasons. Wow. So yeah, you know, I drove two hours to be there after work, right? So I, I got off of work after a full day of work, like 10 hour day, drove up there two hours in traffic. As I get up to speak, they shut the meeting down. I drive two hours home. I mean, these are my first amendment rights being taken away from me in my own time. Whereas the oil and gas, the people that were pro oil, I mean, we sat there with our hands on our laps. We observed, you know, rules and, and good 
practice of, of letting, you know, we all want to hear what the opposition thinks. As far-fetched and crazy as it may sound, we have to understand their process of thinking and what their concerns are so we can come back and say, look, this is a completely unfound fear, you know, and here's what we're actually doing. Here's what, here's how they're designed. Here's why they're safe. Here's why there's very little emissions or no emissions. Uh, in a lot of cases, we design zero uh, emissions well pad systems. And so it, it, it's been it's been tough. It's been frustrating. It's all donated time and volunteer time to just speak up for something I believe in. And um, there's nobody paid on our side to be there. Certainly nobody shows up to these meetings to hear it uh, or to talk about it. Uh, it. It's a handful of people from Energy Strong, and that's about it. Man, and that that's some. That is really frustrating to hear. Yeah, that's tell crazy. me about it. Tell I, me about it. Yeah, you're li- you're living it. You know, I I know some of the people in the opposition groups, and it's just it's very very nimby, right? No nobody is going to say, yeah, you know what? As as my right, I'm going to go live in the woods in a cabin, and I'm just going to use uh, kindling and fires. And that's how I'm going to stay warm, right? No one is actually willing to do that. And I'm going to give up my vehicles and, you know, completely live off the grid. No one's going to do that. And sure, you know, people can say, well, it's the whole system and whatever. This is the system that we have today. And until there's a viable, more reasonable option. So let me, let me peel, peel this back a little bit. Yeah, real quick, before you go there, uh, one of the opposition folks that I talked to at, at one of the, that was actually the Erie meeting. The area is a pretty small town. They could have rode a bike or walked. I saw a couple people drive in. And I said, you know, I'd ask me for or against oil. And they'd say against. I said, you mind if I ask you a question? They'd, most, most of them would say yes. And I remember one of the, the ladies I talked to, I said, well, if you're against oil and gas, why did, why did you drive here? And she said, you know, this is a system that has monopoly on my life. And we need drastic, we need the government to regulate a change. And so they're, as consumers, they don't want to take the responsibility or the blame. They just want to be forced into something else with everybody else. Whereas I look at it from running a business or anything else in my life, you know, running my business, if I were to want to change a big procedure or policy, I wouldn't just take this unproven method and dump it on the company. I would start with a small team, work out the kinks and prove its efficiency and effectiveness and then roll it out. So show me one city in America that runs on 100% renewables first. Then we can have that conversation that we're going to change the entire grid to renewables, which is fine. I'm, I'm fine with cleaner development and less impact. I, I want all those things. But, you know, there's also air travel and liquid fuels in my car. And there's also an environmental impact to renewables that, you know, they focus on the good part of renewables, the, the wind turbine or the solar panel, but not the supply chain of it and development and, you know, the R&D of it, the, the manufacturing, the shipping, the installation. So in with with rooftop solar, for instance, in California, uh, for every uh, 1.5 million roof installs, there's something like 58 deaths. And that's because roofing is very dangerous and it's unregulated. Wow. So there's actually this very high death count uh, for solar because of the install on, on residential roofing. No one talks about those those things it's like the solar panel looks benign. There's no mechanical pieces on it. There's nothing moving. It doesn't make any noise. It doesn't flare gas. It's it must be really green. I don't necessarily see it that way. A lot of my neighbors where I live have solar panels and they're covered with snow when it snows and they turn on their natural gas fireplace. So it's cool that they have a solar panel that, that helps them reduce their energy costs, uh, but I don't have any. I just, I don't, I don't, 
They're not effective enough. And in my view, if you want to change people's, if you want to change a whole system like that under renewables, there are ways to do it without banning oil and gas. One thing I would do, you know, here I am, if I was governor, for instance, I would work to change building code so that all new development must have X number of solar gardens or rooftop solar on them when you build it. So as you build these new communities, hey, if you're going to build in Colorado, you have to have 40% of your housing or whatever. Have 40% of power has to be powered by solar gardens or rooftop solar. Hmm. That's one effective way to do it. Instead, it it doesn't feel like there's a clear path to 100% renewables other than people pledging to do it and then kind of using funny math like Apple where they say we're 100% run 100% renewables, but they're not. They're hooked to the same grid that you and I are, but they buy credits to offset their their energy use and call that green. If I were to do my accounting that way for my business, I'd probably be in prison. But, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's just the way these things work. And, and the world that we, you know, the, the, the game that we have to play, it feels like it's stacked against us. And, and especially with the recent COGCC uh, movements and, and kind of perspective on the, the industry, Man, it's uh, we got our work cut out for us. Yeah, but there goes big oil just whining again. I mean, <laughs> you know, man, I'll yeah. tell you, Jack's Jack's got stats. Careful now, <laughs> this guy knows what's going on. So, so two quick questions for you. One is, say I don't see this happening, but say somehow fracking is banned, completely banned in the United States, and no drill is ever fracked again in the history of the country starting on January 1st, 12 months after that, what is our price of oil per gallon? Per barrel? No, per gallon at the tank. Oh, I don't know. It's funny. I I don't know. No one knows that, but it would be, it would be a lot higher, five or six (laughs) times higher than it is. um, I think, I think, I say say like eight or nine bucks is my thought. I think you're, you're giving it 12 months. I'd say the, 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 at the decline rate that we have right now, of course, we'd be importing more oil, but the price is going to shoot up to, what, $90, $100 per barrel. So I don't know where that got to, but we're easily in Texas with low taxes. We're going to be easy at $4 per gallon within a week, within a year of uh, of something like that happening, if it was possible. Well, yeah. you have that. You have that component for sure. So you've got this. And I was one of these people growing up. I grew up in a very from very modest means. We rode the poverty line at a single mom with three kids. My mom had to decide whether to put gas in the car or pay the, the electric bill. And that's not an exaggeration. What I dealt with that, hugging my mom at night while she cried, trying to figure out what bills to pay. That is a lot of Americans. That's a big chunk of Americans that have to pay these energy bills. Are, are, are they okay with uh, their energy bill going up 5X in the next few years? Because that's what's coming under these policies. Look at California as a predecessor to this. There, there's there's no way for it to go other than up. But and, I, and not to mention that the replacement is oil and gas from other countries that may or may not have the same green policies that we do. Well, they don't. They don't. I mean, if we ban it here, the oil is going to come from the Middle East, and you know, culturally and from an environmental standpoint, there's just not the same types of of, of values there. And now, not only uh, that, you have to ship it here. It's it's mind-boggling to think that that's even a solution for some people. 
but it is. And can California deals with it pretty well. My, my story that I wrote about California that I got published came out of, uh, in February, I went to Palm Springs to get away from the cold and I went golfing and I stayed at this resort uh, outside, outside in Palm Springs and they had like 12 fire pits running on natural gas and the things ran 24. I was there for four days. They never shut off at two in the morning. Those things were, were cooking like crazy. And at noon, when we're by the pool, you couldn't even see the flames. You could just see the heat signature coming off of it. They're just running 20. They're wasting all this gas. And I thought, gosh, how crazy is that? That this, uh, this state that is so environment, you know, quote unquote, environmentally friendly and, uh, cares about emissions and imports all this energy. It's just, you know, got these fire pits running full steam four days. I was there 24 hours a day. I mean, that really blew my mind and was really the, the, uh, the seed that got planted that had me do the research into California and just how, how, how crazy their energy policy is. And there's no other word for it. They use more oil today than they did in 1982. You know, there's a big linear map showing they haven't, they haven't reduced their consumption at all. They've just simply, and I think one of the lines in my article, it was, you know, Californians still want and use oil. They just don't want American oil. Well, I think, and that was, I think that the, was kind of, one of the big disconnects I think is that the way it looks, I mean, the the the, fa- the flame the flame in pop at your golf course the flame there looks pretty and it's got warm you put your hands over sure. it's great you know and I took Jeremy on one of our trips to California we I took drove him by the Kern River Field in in Bakersfield and it's very very industrial pipes laying everywhere a lot of pumping units sitting around and that's my impression in California especially that's what they perceive that all oil and gas fields look like very industrial and i think that's part of the problem is they don't see the the you know there's not a factory you go to to build a tesla car that's located in one spot it's spread out and it's very very visible and not not aesthetically pleasing Uh, well or i mean further from that you're talking about the finished product but you know the mining that occurs the 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 plastic injection molding i mean the, the teslas are made of plastic right you've got all, all the you're looking to finish like people say oh oil and gas versus Tesla it's like this whole industry versus a Tesla that that's a finished product well the finished product's made of oil it's a plastic <laughs> made of plastic right and the battery the whole supply chain is petrochemicals and again the important thing here is Tesla's very innovative and those types of innovations we welcome that type of stuff uh, no one's no one's trying to monopolize the energy market it's just simply the the products that I use on a daily basis and and just about everybody else in this country, including its largest detractors, used oil and gas every day. And recently there was a, a study that came out. So Boulder has been the loudest voice in Den- in Colorado against oil and gas. Polis himself hails from Boulder. So do a lot of the uh, three or four of the other politicians that sponsored Senate Bill 181. They all come from Boulder. They're bad. They're huge consumers of oil and gas. And in fact, there was a study from the University of Michigan that showed in the entire country, there was more pollution coming out of Boulder County than any other county in the country. That's a fact. Whoa. So I live. You, uh, uh-huh. I'll send you the study. It's a University of Michigan study. So it's very interesting to see um, the the people in Colorado, uh, or, or uh, it's it's actually a very vocal minority, but the the prevailing narrative being that oil and gas poses a health and safety risk. Then I go down to Midland, Texas, and 
it's some of the healthiest people I've ever seen. Man, these are like tough country people. They're wiry. They're they've been they're hard working. They work, you know, rain, snow, sun, whatever. Uh, they're out in the trenches. They're welding. They're doing all this stuff, and they're healthy. By and large, they're healthy. They 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 live active lifestyles. They're strong. Uh, and statistically, if you look at it, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, and um, uh, I think it's let's see, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas. Arizona and Wyoming have five of the six lowest cancer rates in the entire country. Really? Yet they, wow. they produce a lot of, you know, those are very oil, you know, a lot of oil producing states in there. So it's, it's interesting to see, like, if you actually apply and overlay data to what the narrative is, it doesn't match. And those are the kind of the things we're trying to get out with energy strong and really trying to um, get out there and get people engaged like you can't sit you can't go to work and sit home and hope that your job's going to be here tomorrow we got to fight or, or we're going to get basically out voiced and what's harder going to one of these town hall meetings which it is tough it's it's very uncomfortable but you go to a town hall meeting or a cogcc meeting and be heard what's easier that or picking up your family and moving to texas i mean i'd rather stay and fight for what i believe in and bottom line is if we had the numbers if we had some of these oil filled Companies that, you know, if it's a producer or a midstream operator or a service company gave their employees the two or three hours to go down there and testify. And we had 3000 people show up for oil and gas. We would drown out the opposition and there would it would be we could turn the tide. But it's 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 10 or 20 or maybe 30 people from Energy Strong there to talk. And we're always against 30 or 40 people that, you know, they're people that are concerned parents and community and. With tombstones in hand. Tombstones <laughs> in hand. It's not Man. a fair fight, but it doesn't matter. I'm not griping about it. We got a, we've got, the, we we've got, the, we've got a good story to tell. I keep saying that we've got a great story to tell. We just got to tell it. Man, this is this is really good stuff, Jack. I'm, we may need to to have you come back on another session. We didn't even get to the lighter stuff, man. Yeah, I want to. I want. I mean, can we bang it out? We've got 40 minutes. How much time we got left? We over the. We're at, we're, at a, we're at about 42 minutes right now. But anyways, uh, Jack, so uh, all right, I'll ask just the, the two more that, that I had, and then we're going to cut this. First of all, I think a lot of what I took of what you just said is money talks. It may be a silent minority, but it's a very, very wealthy minority if you're talking about the people that support the anti-oil and gas movement, despite not having any plan necessarily to support that movement. The other question I wanted to ask is about your company, man. Um, Summit Engineering Services. I saw you guys were doing great things. You have a, a really nice presence on LinkedIn, won a bunch of awards, and, and you got acquired. You sold the company to Sargent and Lundy. Tell us a little bit about what that was like uh, for you to, to do that acquisition and transition to a, a different organization um, in an acquisition. Sure. So I appreciate that. So I've, uh, as an entrepreneur-minded person, that has always been a dream and a goal was to be acquired and go through an acquisition and a successful merger. And uh, we did that. So as we were merging, um, which was a you know, several months long process and very complicated uh, transaction. But at the end of the day, we have a very good brand. Uh, the Summit Engineering team did very good quality work. We were engaged with the community. Um, we, we, we focused on our customer. We had this great customer service focus, but we also stood next to our customers and presented at town hall meetings and discussed how we were going to design and engineer things to be safe. Like we were taking a very proactive approach there. 
we were approached by Sergeant Lundy and, and went through the transaction and, um, it was extremely successful. It was awesome. Um, it happened at a, you know, that just so happened that closing happened at a very bizarre time where COVID <laughs> was starting to yeah, right. yeah. and then oil cratered to like negative 40 for a few minutes. Um, so that was tough, but our team overall, we were, we were well diversified in the up, mid and downstream and gas utilities space. So we were able to persevere, although we, we took our hits like, like most companies in COVID and demand fell off a cliff and you had the, the Saudi and Russian price war and all this stuff. I mean, it was like a perfect storm. So navigating a trans, you know, we, we had the vision in my head was okay. Sergeant Lundy has been around since 1891. They've seen every market condition possible, world wars, great depressions, commodity collapses. So it felt like we were nuzzling up to a very good partnership. There was a lot of synergy and complementary things. We were fast and agile and did things, tried to, tried to break the mold on a lot of things while still doing stuff, stay, stuff safely. Well, nuzzling up to this, this company that had a very good tried and true method. And they've been an amazing partner. They've supported us. We've diversified into doing some renewable stuff and carbon very on the, on the leading edge of a lot of carbon capture projects. And then also bringing their team in to help, you know, work on emissions reductions programs with oil and gas clients and, and teaching some of their people the oil and gas methodology, which is more nimble and on the fly, innovative to, you know, get things as modular and safe and simple as possible. So that merger happened and it ha we had visions of, okay, everybody's going to, they're based in Chicago. We're going to fly out there, sign the papers. It's going to be this really cool life event. And, you know, COVID had us yep. locked down. We, <laughs> we did the whole merger uh, remotely. That was right as teams became a thing. And uh, we, we did, we, we did this town hall rollout and did the integration remotely and, at one point, we were using their 3D scanners to 3D laser scan a site in Utah, and the, the guys from uh, Chicago were FaceTiming the guys in Utah, teaching them how to what buttons to push. And so we actually were forced into this kind of decentralized, uh, remote, uh, very fast-paced environment, and we did it great. And ever, you know, Sergeant Lundy's been an outstanding company to be working with. Proud to be a part of that. They've supported us at every every angle, and. Um, it feels it, the timing was was obviously very good, and um, now we're kind of climbing out of you know we, we feel like we've been through the worst of it, but we have to fight. We have to fight for for uh, the industry that we're in, just like every other industry has to fight for its market share. It just so happens that ours currently is a being driven by a, a narrative based in paranoia and uh, exaggeration. So um, merger was great. Proud to be working. Our team has been more or less kept intact. So we have all the same people that we went into the merger with and Fantastic. we've actually added a few people since. So, you know, full, full steam ahead and all, all, all signs, especially given the circumstances of, you know, shutdowns and working remote and COVID and oil and gas commodity pricing, we're, we're blessed to be where we're at and really proud to be doing the work that we are. Yeah. I love exactly. to see those good marriages. Love yeah. This wasn't the typical, you know, a lot of, I've, I'd witnessed it over 15 years where a company comes in Big company comes in, buys a smaller, agile person or the company, and then guts them for their MSAs and a couple people, and then moves on down the line, can, takes the write-off and keeps the clients and eliminates a competitor. This is not that. They've effectively allowed us to operate as we are with our current rate structure, people, and they just want to capture more market share. So it's been this, it's just been like a shot of B12 in the arm, and we're just we're just running as fast as we can right now. 
Well, keep going, man. Jack, yeah. this was a this was a lot of fun for us. And um, just stay at it, brother. Look forward to following your work. Thank you.